Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 18, and I'd like to focus on history today and a period of time that's often neglected by the modern historical profession and the American public at large. And I've mentioned on this podcast before that I believe that academic history is dead and that really the avenue forward for historians is popular history, and I think it's almost always been that way. But uh, as a professional historian by training, someone who uh, got involved with uh, knowing the uh, incestuous and nepotistic, syncophantic profession, which is really what it is, I mean, once you get in with the, with the people that are in the in crowd and you start publishing books and articles with those people, then you move into your academic careers. You know, I've actually been asked before um, why... I'm not working at a, at a four-year university teaching uh, doctoral students. Well, one of the reasons is because there's no jobs. Um, the other, well, there's several reasons. You know, uh, the environment I work is is uh, is is good. Um, and who wants to be around these people that uh, Clyde Wilson has called the snarks? Um, and there was actually an article. And, well, I'm going to save this for another episode. But uh, academic history is is really dead. And so I think that what we need to do is focus on popular history. And one of the areas that's neglected both in academic history, not as much, but definitely in popular history, is this late 19th century period that's often called the Gilded Age. Now, Mark Twain called it that because, you know, gilding is a process by which gold is plated over something less valuable. And so you have all these new rich people who came from nothing but now are rich. And, of course, they're acting rich new money because they're spending a lot of it. And um, you know, these people have been called robber barons. Uh, other people have called them captains of industry. And I focused on a couple of issues in this in some of my books, you know, the Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes. I talked about some of the quote-unquote captains of industry, which is what I call them, uh, because these people really do define the American spirit. But also one of the most important people in this period is Grover Cleveland. Now, I'm going to talk about Cleveland, but the reason I want to talk about this Gilded Age history and political history is because it really is current events. And I think more than anything else, when you look at the presidents in this period and the issues that were on the table in the late 19th century, nothing has changed, really, uh, in about 125 years. I mean, nothing has changed. 130 years, 150 years. You can even go back to Andrew Johnson and what's going on during Reconstruction uh, moving forward. And, and really what you see in the Gilded Age and that late 19th century, it's just a continuation of Reconstruction, economic Reconstruction. This is what the Dunning School in Reconstruction did more than any other school of Reconstruction. You see 
most people focus on the South during Reconstruction, and that's an important part of Reconstruction. But what they miss and what the Dunning School got right is that Reconstruction was a complete overhaul of the entire United States. In fact, it's the process by which the United States was recreated or remade. And so when Barack Obama stood up in 2009 in his first inaugural address and said, we're going to continue remaking America, this process has been ongoing since 1865. Uh, And if you look at this late 19th century period, you can see the seeds being planted by which we're dealing with today. So it's a very interesting period of time. In fact, I think the most interesting period of time in modern American history. I know a lot of people like you know, the Cold War period with foreign policy, or they like um, this, um, you know, the transition during the New Deal and then moving forward in the, the second New Deal and uh, the, the second Bill of Rights and how that applied uh, to modern politics. And I mean, you really see that's a watershed, a turning point. But the late 19th century confronted many of these issues. So you start with a guy like Andrew Johnson, who I've already talked about in this podcast following Lincoln, and how he's really underrated. Uh, Andrew Johnson was trying to stop much of this unconstitutional federal legislation as chief executive officer. I mean, that's what he was doing uh, by vetoing all of the Republican-led legislation. It's just that he couldn't do anything about it because the Republican Congress would override his vetoes. And what you see in the historical profession when they talk about Andrew Johnson is, well, he's just too rigid of an ideologue, and of course he's racist. Well, everyone in the late 19th century, almost to a man, was racist. So, I mean, this is a silly argument. But if you read his veto statements, what he's saying essentially is, look, I can't agree with this legislation because we are greatly expanding federal power beyond the bounds which the founding generation established in the Constitution. Just because we won the war doesn't mean we need to destroy the Constitution. And that's exactly what was happening there in that early phases of Reconstruction. In fact, I think 1866 is one of the most critical years in American history because it was that period of time that Johnson was trying to slow this march towards unconstitutional government, and he couldn't do it. The Republicans were overriding every veto. Of course, they didn't. the Democrats had seats in the Congress, but the South was still not represented. The Republicans were blocking them from taking their seats. And so they could do whatever they wanted, however they wanted. And what we had was mountains of unconstitutional legislation. And in ways that was different from what they were doing before, I mean, you can go back to, say, even 1791 and look at unconstitutional legislation, the first bank of the United States, much of what the Hamiltonian system was trying to do. But in this particular case, it was relief. It was... Uh, what we would call today, you know, social welfare welfare legislation. And Johnson was rightly pointing out that you can't do this. Uh, You know, the states can do this stuff, but the general government cannot. And so Johnson was continually thwarted in his effort to block this legislation. And in fact, this is why he was impeached. He was impeached because he was vetoing legislation and because he violated an unconstitutional law in the Tenure of Office Act. But still, uh, you know, Johnson was trying to be that roadblock. And then, of course, he's, he's knocked out of, of office uh, in 1868, and uh, Hiram Ulysses Grant was elected president, or as he's often known as Ulysses S. Grant. But Hiram Ulysses Grant was elected president, and the Republicans had their guy in the executive branch. And the Grant administration is often seen as one of the most corrupt in American history. And it, 
It really was. You didn't have just corruption at the at the general government. You had it at the state level in ways that, uh, I mean, my gosh, it would make even the current corruption, even in my own state of Alabama, would make that blush. Uh, I mean, this stuff was awful uh, during that period of time. And uh, one of the important issues, though, during the Grant administration, one of the things that I think when you look at current policy, and one of our most important issues is monetary policy. And so this is a current, this is a current issue. Uh, we just had uh, Donald Trump the other day essentially say, look, uh, and, and Peter Schiff has talked about this extensively and I think very effectively, look, uh, we're broke. We can't service the debt. If interest rates go up, we're screwed. And so what we need to do essentially is tell our creditors, you're only going to take, you're going to take less than 100 cents on the dollar on our treasuries, so you're going to get a haircut. Now, what also needs to happen is, of course, spending cuts. And what was going on during the Grant administration? You had extensive, extensive spending. You know, the government was spending more money. But it's also during that time period that Grant rightly and the Congress rightly at one point saw, wait a second here, uh, we need to have a hard money policy or a better hard money policy because uh, we are inflating the currency far too much. So the government went on to a gold standard in the 1870s. And now this, there was a, a depression in 1873 and it was often blamed on this, on this uh, gold standard. Uh, but what's happening here, of course, in the economy, and I think this is one of those depressions that most people don't really talk about, just kind of like the, uh, the Depression of 1893, also uh, the Depression of 1920. Uh, people don't realize, Americans most don't realize, because we don't do this in popular history, that the 1929 Depression was not the first depression in American history. I think if you did a man-on-the-street interview and say, hey, look, when was the first depression in American history? People would say, well, it's 1929. Obviously, 1929. Well, we had them before. We had one in 1819, a really bad one. We had one in 1837, another really bad one. And most of that, I mean, I say all of that, those two depressions were caused by hiccups in the central banking system. The first one because we had a central bank. The second one because Andrew Jackson illegally removed the deposits from the second uh, bank of the United States. And uh, that caused some economic troubles. Uh, and then we went on to an independent treasury system, which was the system we had until the 1860s. Um, and that, that's when we had the National Banking Acts passed, and so we get into the central banking system. And then there's a lot of manipulation in our monetary policy, which creates some ups and downs. We have state capitalism, in essence, and uh, state capitalism is not free market capitalism. You have a bank directing monetary policy, and that creates bubbles. And you had excessive spending in the 1860s and 70s, and that bubble was going to burst. And regardless of whether the United States went on a hard money policy, a much harder money policy, went to a gold standard in 1873, uh, you were going to have um, an economic disruption because of excessive spending in the general government. And so you know, this, is a, this is a current event. I mean, this is why I think the, these elections are so interesting and the other thing, of course, that's really interesting about 1868, you know, you had a conservative Democrat running from New York uh, in 1868, Horatio Seymour, and uh, Grant barely won the 1868 election. And I th if you look at these elections in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and even the 1890s, what you see are razor-thin majorities for the presidential elections. And you really had a split, a north-south split, and this is exactly what you see today. I mean, we're living in the Gilded Age again. 
This is exactly what we have. We're living in the Gilded Age, and one of the things that's happening in this particular period of time, and, and historians often say, well, these rich got richer. They got rich because of government subsidies and government money. Uh, they were getting breaks, which is exactly what's happening again in the general government today. We have a plutocracy, and in the late 19th century, you had a plutocracy, much of it fueled by government subsidies with railroads. So there was really only one rich guy, a railroad magnate in the late 19th century, who had uh, who made his money on his own. I mean, that was it. Everyone else was using government subsidies in one way or another or uh, leg- legislation to enrich themselves. You know, Jay Gould would pay everybody off just to get his way. He'd pay off legislators. He'd pay off judges. He'd pay off everybody. He was the most unscrupulous member of this, quote-unquote, robber baron period. I, again, I think they're captains of industry. A lot of these people were doing this on their own initiative. I mean, you can't take that away. Of course, the income tax was zero at this time, so people were able to uh, accumulate wealth, and I think that's a good part of this. But a lot of this is going on because of economic reconstruction, because the Hamiltonian system has now been ingrained in the central government. The South have been the block to that. They're no longer in the government. And so you see this period. It's really a continuation of reconstruction. And so you go from Grant to Hayes. Now, again, uh, you know, when you look at the 1876 election, Samuel Tilden, another conservative Democrat from New York, is barely defeated. In fact, you know, there was a point here. You know, Hay- uh, Hayes did not win the popular vote. Samuel Tilden did. And Hayes only won by one electoral college vote. And you actually had discussion again in 1876 of secession. Southerners are saying, look, the, the game is rigged. Again, it's voter fraud. It was voter fraud in 1868 that got Grant elected. Actually, it was 18, uh, yeah, 1868. Voter fraud got Grant elected. Voter fraud gets Hayes elected in 1876. And you're going to see this again in uh, 18, uh, 1888. You're going to see voter fraud again come into play. So you have these corrupt elections. This is exactly what we're dealing with here in the, in the, in the early 21st century. You've got corrupt elections. People are talking, this is what voter ID is all about, to try to keep voter fraud. I mean, you have people that really shouldn't be voting, you know, illegally voting. You have voter fraud taking place all over the country. And so this is what people are talking about. This is what they're afraid of. This is exactly what led to years of Republican domination in the late 19th century. Uh, so Rutherford B. Hayes becomes president, and um, you have some monetary issues in, during the Hayes administration, 1877 to 1881, uh, which we'll talk about in a second when we get to um, people like uh, Cleveland and, and Benjamin Harrison. But uh, you know, it's important to note that, again, razor-thin elections— Hayes barely wins the election, he, and he does it through voter fraud. And then you get uh, James Garfield, who was running against a very conservative candidate um, uh, in 1880, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock, who, uh, you know, he's from, from Pennsylvania, a real war hero. But uh, so what you had here in the, ni- in the late 19th century, these northern conservatives, people like Tilden and Hancock uh, and Seymour, uh, running against a fairly— uh, they're not, they're not conservative Republicans. These people were fairly moderate, uh, particularly on government spending. They weren't economic in their views of government spending. So Garfield becomes president. He's only in office for 
uh, a month, a little over a month, he, a little over uh, a few months. I'm sorry, when he's assassinated, and so then Chester Arthur becomes president. And the thing that's interesting about Chester Arthur is one of the main issues was civil service reform. So you had tremendous corruption in the government, and this is you had the spoil system at this particular period of time. And it's one of those issues that people don't, I mean, they think it's, you know, inside baseball. But essentially what happened is Garfield was shot by a guy who wanted a government job, and he didn't get one. And so he thought that if Chester Arthur, who was of his kind, they were called the the stalwarts of his kind, uh, maybe he'd get a job. Of course, not realizing that if he shoots the president, he's going to go to jail. Uh, And so you have, uh, you know, Chester Arthur become president, then you have civil service reform. And so now you have hired government employees. It used to be the president had full control over all appointments in the executive branch. Now it's only about 1%. But in, So we might say, well, that's a good thing. We don't have all the corruption of the spoil system. But what this is also going to do is allow for a massive federal bureaucracy that is unmoving. You know, When you hire people, then you have to fire them and you have to have cause to do it. If they're a political appointee, you just say, hey, you know what? I get to appoint this position. You're out. And you have complete control over the bureaucracy. So there's, there's two different sides to this. You might say, well, this is good. We don't have all the spoils. We don't have people trying to essentially buy government jobs. Well, that's true. But on the other hand, you're going to get a bureaucracy that you can't change and a bureaucracy that becomes its own monster, regardless of who's president. And we're seeing that today. Our federal bureaucracy is its own monster. Uh, you have bureaucrats that uh, decide policy and they enforce it. Now, of course, the executive branch does have a lot of control over this. They set the agenda, but uh, you might have bureaucrats that don't necessarily agree with that, or you're going to have bureaucrats that do agree with it, and they're going to enforce it with zeal. Uh, so that bureaucracy, that unmoving bureaucracy, which, of course, bloats the federal budget, creates massive spending, uh, but this is what you have uh, with, with uh, the executive branch, and it really begins with Chester Arthur. And then you finally get a conservative elected uh, in um, 1884, and that's, that's Grover Cleveland. And uh, Grover Cleveland, there's a lot of parallels between the Cleveland election in 1884 and what we're seeing now. You know, you had uh, the Republican Party running James Blaine. He was the establishment guy. He, had, he was a radical Republican at one point, believed in excessive federal spending, believed in big government and uh, you know James G. Blaine of Maine, and uh, they tried to run a, a campaign which was extremely dirty. They pointed out that Grover Cleveland claimed an illegitimate child, which he did, but Cleveland just admitted to it and said, yeah, uh, I did. Now, there's some question as to whether this child was actually his, but uh, Cleveland just, you know, he's a guy that's seen as, uh, you know, maybe he had some moral failings, but he was going to come in and clean up all the corruption. He was going to come in and change things in Washington, D.C. Now, where have we heard that before in 2016? We got a guy that has a lot of moral failings, but he's promised to come in and wreck the establishment. That's exactly what Grover Cleveland was going to do. He was going to wreck the establishment, and he did. And they hated him for it. And so Cleveland comes in, and uh, Cleveland becomes Mr. Veto. He starts vetoing everything. You had a tremendous amount of fraud in the general government at that point. Uh, pension bills primarily, and people were getting pensions for things like diarrhea. And uh, Cleveland said, that's completely unconstitutional. He signed more pension bills than not. In fact, what you're seeing in the Cleveland administration, you have your first billion-dollar Congress. So we still still saw spending go up. 
but Cleveland was trying to make it more economical. He was trying to clean up some of the corruption. But you had a very powerful lobbying group that didn't like the fact that you have a, a strong conservative president in the old Jeffersonian mold. He's not an imperialist. Uh, he wants to clean up corruption, wants to try to rein in government spending, uh, and the Congress is complying, but you have the Grand Army of the Republic want Cleveland out, and so in 1888, you get Benjamin Harrison, through voter fraud again, win the election. And in, the, in that period of time, when Benjamin Harrison was president, you're going to see higher taxes, you're going to see uh, the removal of a, or actually a, a very bad piece of legislation passed um, uh, called the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, uh, which is going to wreck the economy. And so when Cleveland is re-elected president in 1892, and he comes back in in 1893, you have a depression again, and Cleveland straightens that out by uh, essentially uh, restocking gold in the federal treasury. But what happens here is you have, and, and Cleveland very clearly says, look, I'm not going to sign any legislation that's going to uh, spend money on social welfare. And so the interesting thing about this late 19th century, the progressives were out there. They were pushing this progressive agenda, and they had been since the 1860s. But it was thought with the election of Grover Cleveland twice and then William McKinley in 1896, and there's a very interesting group in 1896, the National Democratic Party. They were a gold standard party. Uh, Cleveland-oriented Democrats and um, who, who broke away from the Democrat Party in 1896 because they nominated William Jennings Bryan. But a lot of these people went and voted for McKinley in 1896. But what you really had uh, with that is a, is a very conservative monetary policy. In fact, people thought that progressivism had been beaten back finally, really, in the late 19th century. But what they didn't foresee was Teddy Roosevelt becoming president in 1901 after McKinley's assassinated and progressivism just takes hold. So it's a, it's a nice learning learning tool that shows that progressivism is never going to be defeated. You have to constantly beat it back. And as Jeff Dice has pointed out recently in a piece at Mises.org, um, it controls everything now. I mean, progressives control everything. They control education. They control the government. They control the economy. They control the, the legal profession. They control everything. And it really begins there with Teddy Roosevelt. So the, cons the conservatives thought they had won the day. And I think there's also another turning point in where conservatives lost. And that was the Spanish-American War. So again, foreign policy means a lot. You see, the conservative American foreign policy had been non-imperialism. You know, Grover Cleveland was not an imperialist. He didn't like the fact that there was a coup in Hawaii and that this coup took out the Hawaiian government and tried to uh, you know, get the United States to annex Hawaii. He wasn't happy about that. And so he refused to do it. But, of course, when McKinley becomes president, the imperialists in the Republican Party have their way, and you really started seeing imperialism take hold of Republicans in the Reconstruction period. And there was uh, a paper when I was in graduate school that um, there was a, a guy who wrote this paper, and I think he's, he's published uh, an academic treatise on this. His name was David Pryor. And uh, about imperialism uh, in the late 1860s, and he was talking about Crete and how there were people in the Republican Party that were for Cretan independence because this was spreading liberty and democracy around the globe. And of course, when you look at our foreign policy in relation to the Indian tribes, that's exactly what was happening. It was cultural imperialism being spread across the North American continent. It was just taking Reconstruction to another level 
to a different people. And if you look at the Indian tribes in Oklahoma, they were being reconstructed because many of them had supported the Confederacy. And so they were being abused. Their, their treaties were ripped up and renegotiated. Actually, not really renegotiated, but they were dictated to them. Uh, and so this was just an extension of, re, of Reconstruction. So what you have here in so many ways in the late 19th century, the Gilded Age is just a process of Reconstruction. And what you've seen here with the Obama administration is just another process of Reconstruction. Same thing with the George W. Bush administration economically. Obama's done it a little bit in social policy. It's just another form of Reconstruction. We've been reconstructed since 1865, really 1866, the turning year, and progressivism has always been a part of that. And so what you're seeing with Donald Trump in this backlash, every now and then you have a backlash against it. You had it in 1980 with Ronald Reagan. There was a backlash. You had it again in, uh, somewhat in 1920, but definitely with Calvin Coolidge in 1924, there was a backlash. But that's about it. Uh, and, and even when you look at Reagan and even Coolidge, and I'm not certain, you know, I've said Trump is the best option, particularly in regard to foreign policy. Uh, but when you look at these backlashes, they don't last because the progressives are aggressive and they won't stop. And you have this bureaucracy that can't be reformed. And you started seeing that in the late 19th century and it's ongoing. So one of the key parts of American history is that Gilded Age period. You have razor-thin elections, voter fraud, monetary policy, foreign policy, things that are very important for our current political process. You really start seeing these things codified and not just that solidified within the party apparatus of the late 19th century. And the progressives went out. Progressive imperialist foreign policy wins out. Progressive imperialist domestic policy wins out, even though you have someone like Grover Cleveland in the late 19th century. He can't stop everything. You've got to have a Congress that's willing to also go along. And so that's one thing that uh, you know uh, people talk about Trump. It really is irrelevant if the Congress does their job and the states do their job, what Donald Trump thinks about bathrooms. It's really irrelevant. Foreign policy is everything. And that is the constitutional responsibility of the, of the executive branch is foreign policy, to direct foreign policy. Now, of course, the Senate has to ratify treaties. We've seen what the Obama, the Obama administration has complete contempt for the ratification process of treaties, but he's not alone. As I point out in nine presidents who screwed up America, many presidents have done this. Uh, but really, the last, you know, last four administrations, you've had complete contempt for Congress in terms of foreign policy. Maybe we, I mean, one of the things that I would hope Donald Trump would do uh, is use the Congress a little more effectively in foreign policy. But uh, foreign policy dictates domestic policy. And as we start becoming culturally imperialistic, that's going to translate into domestic policy. You've got to spend more money for wars. Uh, so this is very, very important to think about as we look forward to the 2016 election and what do we want out of the executive branch? And when you look at this late 19th century, our, we were broke in the late 19th century, at least in terms of you know, how much we were spending. And so there was a real discussion about monetary policy. This is something that Ron Paul has done a great job of, trying to put this in the forefront. We need to talk about monetary policy. Trump has said it. We're broke. Uh, we're broke. We're completely broke. We need to talk about monetary policy. And foreign policy is also part of that because you can't afford an empire when you have no money. And that's essentially what he's saying about domestic policy. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, his, his policy with NATO and other things, his foreign policy in that regard. We're broke. 
So if we really want to look at a period of time that I think is so instructive for modern America, it's that late 19th century, and unfortunately nobody really talks about it. We talk about the 1850s and 60s, we talk about the founding period, but it's in that late 19th century that everything was solidified and codified for what we're looking at today. I don't think there's any way around it. You know, The progressives would not have come to power if they had not been ramping up there in the late 19th century. And then, of course, they're able to come to power with Teddy Roosevelt, and we really haven't had any break in progressivism since. Um, so we had progressives in the late 19th century. It's just they were, they were being put down. And again, there was, a, there was some thought that the progressivism had been killed. It hadn't. It just came back and came back worse than ever. So this is why I like the late 19th century and why I don't think it's the wasteland of American politics, as many people have called it. It really is an important part of history. Just go out there and do a little looking. You know, you can go to places like, uh, you know, I hate to recommend it, but Wikipedia has nice little articles on these elections, nice little maps to show you what it looked like and, uh, you know, how these elections were shaking out. Uh, You know, you have to be careful with Wikipedia, absolutely. But uh, the election maps are interesting. Or Dave, Dave Leap, you know, there's a great uh, website, Dave Leap. He, he puts out this uh, website on presidential elections. Uh, fantastic. Uh, so, uh, so go out and look at Dave Leap's website. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's highly useful because he goes county by county oftentimes in modern elections. It's a lot of fun if you're a political junkie to go look at this stuff. So that's it. That's the Brian McLanahan Show for this week. And I'll see you next time.